acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which we're gathered this afternoon, and pay my respect to elders past and present, and to emerging community leaders. Ian McLean is Senior Research Professor of Contemporary Art at the University of Wollongong and Adjunct Professor at the University of Western Australia. He's published extensively on Australian art and particularly Aboriginal art within a contemporary context. His books include Double Desire, Transculturation and its Indigenous Art, how Aborigines invented the idea of contemporary art, which is on sale for a special price this afternoon of $35. White Aborigines Identity Politics in Australian Art, and the art of Gordon Bennett with a chapter by Gordon. And we're opening an exhibition of Gordon's work here at the IMA on the 25th of October, which I hope you'll join us for as well. Ian is a former advisory board member of Third Text and is currently on the advisory boards of World Art and National Identities. After Ian's lecture, which takes Richard Bell's essay, Aboriginal Art, It's a White Thing, as its starting point, Richard will respond and open up a conversation. So please welcome, join me in welcoming Ian McLean. Good afternoon, everybody. For some reason, I thought the talk was going to be at um, six o'clock. <laughs> so I was a, trying to get my head around it being at three o'clock. I once went to a Tom Waits concert at, um, when I was a uni student at midday, and he thought, he thought it was going to be on at midnight. <laughs> he only sang about three songs and gave up. <laughs> but I won't do that. Um, okay. So I've got a paper here, it'll probably take 20, 20 minutes or so, give Richard plenty of time to respond. Um, like, like most animals, humans like to organise themselves. Ant nests, beehives, priestly keepers of sacred groves, councils of elders, artists and guilds, trade unions, churches, sports clubs, schools, marriage, they're all institutions of sorts except that institutions usually have a special status. They are generally associated with professional organisations that operate under the sanction of the law or the state. This is the difference between, say, the IMA and the Hells Angels. One is an institute, the other is a gang. A semantic nuance, perhaps, but one that sticks, which is to say an institute is an organisation that has the state on its side. And so that's sort of the idea that runs through thinking about this question. The Australian art world has an array of professionally organised, state-sanctioned and state-funded art institutions. We're standing in one. Most of them are grappling with what to do with Indigenous art. Indeed, the state is demanding it of them, but, it is, but so is the zeitgeist to which we're all beholden. It's why we're here this afternoon, I hope. Now, the question before us has two very different answers, I think, both of which depend on identifying the missing adjective that has slipped from view, which I've slipped in one here. If the adjective is indigenous, then, we're, then our question is, or what we're inquiring into is what indigenous art institutions do for indigenous art. 
Now, Richard Bell might dismiss this, this question because for him, they're probably all white institutions anyway. There's no such thing as an indigenous art institution. After all, by my definition of institutions, they, um, they're all backed by the state and the state is founded on the white Australia policy. But I take a more muddied, a more muddied view, or maybe a more muddled view, we'll see. So here's my uh, first answer to this question. Um, and it sort of begins with a very short history of Indigenous art institutions. Various types of modern indigenous organizations were quickly established on the colonial frontier to, to meet the demand of white traders. Though at first they were barely more than workshops, a few artists jointly pumping out work in exchange for tobacco and steel from anthropologists and souvenir hunters. The most successful of these enterprises used white brokers. The most reliable and easily manipulated of these white brokers were missionaries. With access to the market and knowledge of how modernity worked, white brokers were the key to the establishment of the first quasi-indigenous art institutions. For example, in the late 19th century, um, some Deary elders and Lutheran missionaries, pictured here down on the left, um, established an art museum, research centre and workshop at Kilapania, which is um, on Lake Eyre. 400 toes, a couple pictured here, which were a sort of new post-contact artefact invented on the mission, were manufactured there in 1904. Now, I don't know what the Deary artists received for making the toes or for designing and making them, but a few years later, Pastor Reuther sold them to the South Australian Museum for 400 pounds, which he pocketed. Compensation, I suppose, for his poor wages as a missionary. Now, despite incompetence, ruthlessness and outright fraud by some white brokers, this transcultural practice of cultivating white brokers remains the model of many, um, if not all, indigenous art institutions in remote Australia. Some 60 years after the South Australian Museum bought its collection of towers, its director, Bob Edwards, became an important broker in establishing the Uendamu Men's Museum, which opened in July 1971. It was a hybrid institute part religious sanctioned by the ceremonial men and part art museum modelled on Darby Ross, we see him pictured here, Darby Ross's experience in the South Australian Museum in the mid-60s and sanctioned by the Australian nation state which helped fund it and whose representatives were at the opening. You see over there, I think I've been trying to identify sort of qualifies, I think, for an Indigenous Art Institute. Darby Ross was its curator. Now, similar type museums now exist on many remote Indigenous communities. A few years later, as director of the Aboriginal Arts Board, Ed Edwards oversaw the establishment of many Indigenous art institutions in remote Australia. The first was Papanyatula. It began as an Indigenous initiative in 1971 and within a year was state-funded and fully incorporated, fully legally incorporated. Within 10 years, it acquired all the attributes of an art institute and a highly successful one at that. 
1981, with a mix of its own funds and state aid, it facilitated the Pintapis' return to their country by establishing an outstation at Kintor or Wawangura. And over the years, and we can see, I've sort of put this on though, over the years, at the beginning, at the top, now at the bottom, over the years, um, Papanyatula was instrumental in transforming it, along with the state of course, into a modern town of about 500 people, 90% of whom are Pintabi. For indigenous art institutions, it's not just what they do for artists, but also what they, do, what they make the art do for the community. It's not just what they do for the art, in other words. Many remote indigenous art institutions, including Papanyatula, are the legacy of early missionary days. We tend to think that missions were white institutions, but to indigenous people on the ground, to ones who lived there, they seemed indigenous ones with the few poorly paid whites used as go-betweens to secure the goods and knowledge of modernity. Buku Lane Mulka, for example, which sits opposite the church that was officially opened in 1963, traces its origin to the gallery that Narajin Maimura set up in the 1960s on the, near, on the nearby Yirrkala beachfront. Narajin, who spoke, who spoke the best English amongst the, um, the Yolnu there, was the main broker between the Yolnu and the missionaries and anthropologists and collectors and dealers who visited Yirrkala. In other words, he was the broker of the brokers. In collusion, with the missionary superintendent, Edgar Wells, Narachin played a key role in organising and painting the Yirrkala church panels, pictured here, and the 1963 Bach petition that these church panels inspired, uh, both, both done in 1963. Wells, the missionary superintendent, lost his job over the petition. The Arts Centre was formally institutionalised in 1975 with funds from the Aboriginal Arts Board. Now a thriving art institution employs about a dozen people, a little less of half of whom are white, delivering about a million dollars to its artists every year. If you go there, you will feel the buzz in the place, I assure you. Um, what have I done? I thought I had a picture of it. Oh, yeah, there it is there. I must have got my slides mixed around. That's the Art Institute at Yirrawalla, at Yirrakala. Now, the buyers are nearly all white. Even Toby, Tony Abbott is a customer and has a painting by Jambawa Marawili Willie hanging behind his new desk in his downside office. I saw a picture of it in The Australian today. <laughs> but I'd love to see Richard tell Yinamala Gumana, the man pictured in the middle here, who's the current chairperson for Buku Lane Mulka, that he oversees a white thing. Yinamala might be a young fellow, but he has a formidable mind and persona shaped by the all new finishing school for future leaders. Hearing him speak, you feel his chairmanship is just practice for much bigger things. Ishmael is a, another man who's gone through that. Um, Ishmael, who's a filmmaker at the centre, is another man who's gone through that uh, Yolnu finishing school for future leaders. Sort of very young but very articulate um, and strong men. So what does Buku Lane Mulka do with Indigenous art? It, uh, well, it makes it, it packages it, it ships it around the world, it develops projects for it, it inserts it in the contemporary art scene, it cultivates influential art world brokers the world over, it uses art as a political leverage in the community and the wider world, it nurtures, and it nurtures a new generation of artists and leaders. Um, it also archives and researches Yolnu culture, 
and has a museum in which it narrates a history of modern Yolngu art. I've lost track. I thought I had another picture there, but I won't talk about it because it's not there. The, the, interestingly, the central, the central uh, painting in the museum is, is the church panels. It's where, for the Yolnu, Yolnu modern art begins with those church panels. And um, I've got the church panels in a sort of little room that's like an altar, like an altar room in a, you know, in a Catholic church. And behind the wall in the church panels is the petition. That's the other great beginning, these two works, the, the great beginning of the all-new modern art in the museum. Um, so, that's uh, the, first, the first part of that question answered. The second part... The second question is a very different one, I think, because in the second question there is, in fact, no missing adjective. This really is an example of what of white speak, where white is the invisible default term, not so much a missing adjective, but an invisible term. And so the question is, what can white art institutions do with Indigenous art? Now, they do a lot, of course, and always have, but they do it very differently from Indigenous art institutes. Um, this, in part, reflects their origins. Contemporary white art institutions don't descend from frontier workshops or missions, but from those grand edifices, edifices built during the colonial era to provide the moral justification of European imperialism. Their footprint is much bigger, much, much bigger than that of indigenous art institutions. I think, you know, what they've done in the British Museum is a fantastic image of uh, sort of white power emanating out into the, out into the museum, and we get the, the war memorial, keeping it in its place. Um, that's why I couldn't resist putting those images on. Now, um, whiteness, whiteness, white studies has made us familiar with terms like white speak, white writing and white art. There is also white museology. Manifestations of white mythology, between them um, they sought to dominate the discourse of, of modernity and, and pretty well succeeded. Now, white museology, which you'll see illustrated here, was based on a very simple idea, the separation of museums, a fine art one for European art and an ethnographic one for non-Western art, each displaying the art in very different ways. And uh, I don't need to really go into that because I'm sure you're all familiar with it. This is why getting into the Fine Art Museum and its current discourse of contemporary art has been the key um, indigenous strategy of the last you know, 20 or 30 years. There has been some success in Australia, but little elsewhere. Even those, art, even those overseas museums of contemporary art that are opening their borders to the non-Western world because of the imperatives of globalization have not really embraced indigenous art, well, not many have. It makes um, Sydney's Museum of Contemporary Art, in which its galleries freely mix Indigenous and non-Indigenous art, seem a window onto the future. Now, we should not underestimate the momentous shift that occurred in Australia's white art institutions during the 1980s. Indigenous art then got caught up 
or is still caught up in the search for a new museology that reflected a new multicultural Australia, one radically different from the white Australia ideology that founded the Australian nation state and shaped the Australian art world until then. While also a global phenomenon, this post-colonial politics had an urgency in Australia due to its particular colonial history. Distinctions between Indigenous art and Western art are still made in um, many of Australia's state art galleries, but for entirely new purposes that stem from the imperatives of self-determination and, and what I'm calling the ethnic essentialism of multiculturalism. Social evolutionism, which was the, cited as a scientific basis of white mythology, um, had, had been consigned to the rubbish bin of history. The writing was on the wall for white art institutions by the time Bumali was established in 1987. From this point, only indigenous voices could speak about indigenous art. This inaugurated a new separatist black museology that grounded professional authority in one's ethnicity and made museums, both fine art and ethnographic, potential sites of indigenous power. Indigenous players were not slow to seize it. Ethnographic museums were no longer the morgues of dead cultures, but rich indigenous controlled archives from which indigenous people, um, including indigenous artists, could reclaim and refigure their heritage. Since the mid-1990s, indigenous curators of indigenous art became normative in, in Australian state in, um, art institutions. And this really was the key thing that white artist, art institutes did for indigenous art, because it changed everything. And it was about, this was about when I blundered onto the stage. Uh, wrong skin, wrong place and wrong time for me. But uh, lucky Richard came along and let me off the hook. Not easily fooled by the changing antics of white institutions, he declared Aboriginal art, it's still a white thing. So I'll keep um, yabbering rather than leave the stage like I was supposed to, just to prove his point. Because black museology, you see, was the new white sanctioned, funded, and promoted by the state. Now, I, I stumbled on, on this stage of what indigenous art as a naive disciple of post-colonial cosmopolitanism, which opposed identity politics and the ethnic essentialism of black museology. This cosmopolitanism mainly emanated from third world academics and artists, third world academics and artists living in the first world. It was also evident in Australia, in, for example, Gordon Bennett and Tracy Muffin sa saying they didn't make Indigenous art and refusing the overtures of black museology. Shortly for, before them, two young postmodernists, Imance Tillis and Paul Taylor, had done a similar thing in, refer, in reverse, declaring themselves white Aborigines. It's the sort of thing I grew up in as a student. Now, this topsy-turvy thinking of the 80s gives an historical perspective, I think, to Richard's aphorism or Bell's theorem, as he calls it, the Aboriginal, that Aboriginal art is a white thing. Brisbane also was a centre of post-colonial cosmopolitanism, the Campfire Collective and the exhibition from which it grew balance, both of which Richard was involved in. Evenly divided between remote urban and urban Indigenous artists and white artists, balance was boycotted by Bumali on the grounds of identity politics. Now, in the wake of globalisation, identity politics has lost the purchase it had in the contemporary art world during the 70s and 80s. However, it hasn't in the real world. Identity politics, which operates according to the same paradigm as nationalism, 
is a product of black nationalism that took its cue, or I should say indigenous identity politics, is a product of black nationalism that took its cue earlier in the 20th century from discourses of the nation state. It was a sort of answer to white nationalism. Now, nation states are here for the foreseeable future despite globalisation. Thus, identity politics remains well and truly alive in the nation states' art institutes, institutions, be it framed in terms of Australian or Indigenous identity. Further, the everyday politics of power remains framed in national terms, which in turn cultivates a counter-black nationalism. Now, while Yolnu art leaders in the Indigenous identity politics that plays out at the national level in Australia today, sorry, are, are leaders in this um, identity politics, you'll be hard-pressed to find any black nationalism at Bukulane Mulka. Here, the art is about being Yolnu, not Aboriginal. Further, Buku Ladu Mulna has positioned itself, Mulka has positioned itself as a node in a global and not just national um, art world network and facilitates transcultural engagements with non Yolnu artists. I showed you an example earlier. By that I mean, you know, there are quite a few non Yolnu artists working up there as, as well in, in sort of collaborative works. So it, it's, an ex it, it's exemplary really of what's called glocalisation of the simultaneous intensification of local and global vectors that bypass the nation state and its politics of, of nationalism and various national identities. So where do white art institutions sit in this complex mash of globalisation and nation state politics? Well, it depends on the institution. State art galleries, which are expected to, which are sort of clo the closest of all white art institutions to state power are expected to represent the national culture and its post-1970s multicultural ethic and so will naturally tend to fall in line with the separatism and ethnic essentialism of identity politics. Whereas contemporary art spaces and museums will more likely reflect the cosmopolitan paradigm, be more responsive, more responsive to those currents. However, each has to, do, each has to deal with those um, sort of divergent currents. So no matter how cosmopolitan it is, no white art institution in Australia can escape the hold of indigenous identity politics. It is a necessary limit and in a sense burden of our place and time. It has a, it has a hegemonic hold on the ideology of Australian state institutions in a similar fashion, I think, I'm, maybe you might think I'm exaggerating here, but I couldn't resist the comparison. Same fashion that communist ideology did in Russia. Like the, like the communist commissariats appointed to Soviet institutions, indigenous advisory committees now vet everything to ensure it follows the party line. And all official events begin with the equivalent of singing the communist internationale and offering praise to the dear leader. In this case, a welcome to country and a bow to elders past and present. The only difference is that it is a purely symbolic facade in Australia. Unlike the Soviet Union, there's no political power behind this show. There's no central committee, secret police, gulags and re-education camps. However, symbols are powerful. They tend to work their way deep into the psyche and I think uh, the symbol is doing that in Australia, this symbolism. Thus, Australia's white art institutions, especially its more contemporary art institutions, are caught in, as I said, these currents of globalism, national state politics and the inescapable legacy of settler colonialism which now is, um, you know, black nationalism, identity politics. 
As Australia's preeminent contemporary art museum, Sydney's MCA is caught in the most choppy of these cross currents. And I want to just end on by looking at how they've um, steered their way through these cross currents. What have they done? Firstly, it has an all Indigenous advisory group, a, a commissariat, if you like, chaired by Hetty Perkins, who also sits on the museum's board. And it has what it calls a curator of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander programs. It's Keith Munro. However, he's not an art curator. He is in the education section, but acts in an advisory capacity on Indigenous matters to the museum. In other words, a commissar by another name, but one, however, who answers to the director and not a central Politburo. However, the MCA has gone down the route of curatorial separatism, what I'm calling curatorial separatism, sorry, has not gone down the route of curatorial separatism, by which I mean you hang the Indigenous art in those galleries and the non-Indigenous art in those galleries. In a re recently released Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander policy, that's, it, that's what they called it, the museum announced, quoting from it, its Indigenous commitment is part of its ongoing core business rather than a separate Indigenous strategy. So there are no departments at the MCA, just as, there's no Department of Indigenous Art, for example. Just a single, what they call curatorial team, comprising, quote, a chief curator, two senior curators and one curator. And they curate all exhibitions, Indigenous or not, in the exhibition. None of those curators are Indigenous. Though there are two Indigenous interns at the moment, one of whom Nicole Forshaw curated this year's Primavera, which just opened, couple of days ago. Now engaging in the cosmopolitan discourses of contemporary art, I'm talking about Primavera here, engaging in the cosmopolitan discourses of contemporary art, it's seven artists are from a range of ethnic backgrounds. Um, and I'll just put on one example, this work's not actually in the show, um, and, but it's an example from the Perth-born Abdul Abdullah who's in the work, who's in the show, sorry. And this is what uh, Forshaw said, I think, in full cosmopolitan flight. This is her um, statement about what the exhibition's about. The practices foregrounded in this exhibition and the cultures and conditions of life, work and history that they emerge from are situated within a broader experience of a resurgent global south, within which peoples belonging to a diversity of cultures question received ideas of identity, culture and power. The seven artists come from a, a mixture of um, Indigenous Australian, and um, different migrant Australian backgrounds. It's a sort of multicultural show, you might say, which has Indigenous artists in it. Now, the current lack of Indigenous curators at the MCA is due to curatorial appointments being made on professional merit and not identity markers such as gender, sexual orientation, class or ethnicity. 15 years ago, the job of chief curator at the MCA, not Indigenous curator, but chief curator, was actually offered to the experienced Indigenous curator, Margot Neal, but for personal reasons, she was unable to um, take it. So there's no reason why there couldn't be an Indigenous curator as their chief curator, but I suppose they would have to curate a lot of non-Indigenous shows as well, which we don't see many Indigenous curators in, in Australia doing. Now, the new Indigenous policy at the MCI, at the MCA has a much wider brief than just art. It, it's a policy about the whole, how the whole MCA is run. It's committed the MCA to, quote, equi equitable targets and outcomes in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander employment, by which I presume it means it will aim for a minimum of 2.5% Indigenous employees. 
And it also says these Indigenous employees will have exceptional professional development opportunities, end of quote. It didn't say if the professional, if the professional development opportunities for the other 97.5% employees were also exceptional, but I presume they are. Now, to my knowledge, Buku Lane Mulka does not have an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander policy. Guided instead by Yolnu thinking and aspirations and a very different set of parameters than the MCA, albeit ones also formed by tensions between globalisation and nation-state politics, it operates, I suspect, with much greater freedom than any other white art institution in Australia. Does this mean that white and Indigenous art institutions march to separate tunes? That each does very different things for Indigenous art? Un undoubtedly, I think. Like the separatism that tends to prevail in state art galleries, this difference, this the separatism between Indigenous art institutions and white art institutions is, um, is, is really um, due to the colonial experience, which is sort of so deeply etched in what it means to be an Australian, and it cannot be wished away, um, no matter how cosmopolitan we want to be. There are no easy answers, in other words. Rather, it's, um, a, a, it's something that has to be worked through. And um, it's why I think these are such interesting times in Australia. I'll leave it to Richard to... Um to, to uh, have your say. Like uh, at a pulpit is not kind of my thing. Um, I'd, I'd much rather have a conversation about it. Um Pardon? Yeah, um, well, okay, well, if it's a response to um, uh, Bell's theorem, um, which uh, looked at... It's not really right. Oh, right, yeah. yeah. I will, you know, that um, the Yurikala Museum, you know, like, um, that, you, that's a situation that's pretty unusual throughout uh, Aboriginal Australia, where... They have um, funding, you know, uh, through the the mine there, the, the bauxite mine. So they, they've been quite well funded, and that's why they've had this uh, level of um, um, independence um, and are able to. But a lot of the other art centres around um, the, the country, a lot of them, if um, if it wasn't for the white staff, um, would collapse and, uh, and fail, which to me su you know, would suggest that the people aren't that interested in having um, an arts an arts centre. So this, with uh, the art institution, you know, from what the, the black art inst institution can do, um, I think they could do a, a, a lot more, um, but not necessarily within the institution. You know, like I, I think... Um, uh, one of the things that they, they could do is try to uh, reconnect the, uh, the young people um, to, the, to the culture because a, a lot of them are looking outside, you know, the outside influences, you know, like uh, for, for instance, you know, um, gang culture, you know, like in the United States. Um, that's, you know, on evidence in, you know, um, DVDs and that sort of thing that are, that are around... The, all the communities and that sort of thing, and, and 
I don't know if you've been to, um, what's the one at Port Keats? Uh, the really big one, um, big uh, reserve there. Um, Wadi. Um, there's more than 3,000 pe people live there. You know, can, uh, there's young gangs getting around, uh, around there. You know, like, uh, people, the youngsters, are, uh, particularly the young men, are, you know, like, are rejecting you know, Aboriginal culture you know, um, because, uh, well, they don't have girlfriends, you know, because the old men, you know, have their promise to these old men. So uh, there's this pro there's this problem, you know, with meeting with, uh, you know, this clash of cultures, you know, where the the new culture uh, arrives on the door, you know, like, um, and some of these other things, um, like like the the issue with multi multiple wives, um, uh, actually inhibits. Uh, the the possibility for for cult, the culture surviving um, because these young, these young men are, are just abandoning you know Aboriginal culture and, and adopting this this new culture um, as as a direct response right so I think that that they could do they could do better by just you know, I don't know how you know a man could have more than one wife you know, it's just you know, handling one of them is hard enough. You know, so, um, uh, but there's, you know, there, there's a lot of um, support from you know, um, uh, people who, who take a more essentialist attitude to this. Um, you know, they say that uh, they they long for the days of you know, um, the you know, the the laws that don't change. You know, well, well, to me, that sounds a lot like the fucking Taliban and you know, Al Qaeda to me. So. I'm not that keen on, on heading down that path. So, um, in those sort of circumstances, so I think that you know, we have to have a discussion in among Aboriginal communities, you know, about some of these things, about moving into, you know, this modern world. You know, like we have to uh, adapt and adopt, like like um, every other culture throughout history. You know, we you know, have adapted and adopted. You know, we've taken. Uh, things from other cultures, you know, like um, the the laws and that weren't that steadfast, actually. You know, like um, you know, and changes has been um, um, incorporated into cultures all over the world. And one of the things that we'll have to come to terms with, I think, is, is this thing of multiple wives. That's one of the issues that needs to be discussed. Um, in doing in, in doing that, that then allows uh, the younger people to to engage w with um, um, uh, the culture again. Now, one of the things um, that uh, convinced me to write Bell Serum was, um, you know, the carpetbaggers. You know, like and how uh, they influenced um, Aboriginal art. Uh, there was a lot of um, uh, profit-making um, by people outside Aboriginal communities. Um, there's a lot of resistance to it and that sort of thing. I think had they, um, you know, involved the, the young kids in in that, and they could still do, do it by um, uh, getting them to to um, small groups of these these young kids, you know, to you know from you know, 12 to you know, 16, 17, 18 or whatever, you know, like, um, get them, a group of them to, to support the artists in their family, you know, to um, uh, 
They teach them how to document the, the works, how to order the, the materials and that from um, uh, down south and that. Um, 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 get them to make contact with um, the, the galleries and that down south. Um, travel with the artists. Um, I noticed that um, uh, at uh, one of the uh, indigenous triennales, you know, um, that all the white people were staying in five-star hotels and we were staying in like two-star or three-star. I think some of us were, I think the one I was in was like one step up from a caravan park. But, uh, um, you know, like if they'd have got these, um, young, these young kids, like if a, if a carpetbagger came into town, you know, like, and, and these young kids are de you know, dealing with their uncles and aunties and that sort of thing, They'd all have you know, a mobile phone. They say, "Hey, Johnny, you look. Uh, some, uh, there's a white fellow here. Want to buy your uncle's painting? You look. Uh, you know, it's a three thousand dollar painting. They want to pay three hundred dollars for it. You know? They, you know, they'll be jumping on their bike. You look. Know, you know, you know uh, and and running around with this guy and just saying, right, okay, this is a, this is the deal. And that's uh, I thought that was a, a you know a, a way of dealing with with that problem. You know, that that where they didn't need any outside help uh, to do it. You know, that, they could all, all do it. Like all, all these kids have got, have got phones and, uh, and that sort of things already. You know, like they've, they've um, they could they could do these things. You know, it's it's not that difficult. Give you know, give them give them a cut of the of, of the money. You know, so they've got an income that involves them in in the, the culture because otherwise, you know, they're, they're going to end up you know, losing the, this culture, uh, losing these stories because. Um, these people will not share these things with them unless they commit to um, to um, uh, living with these and, and holding and keeping these stories to pass on to other people. Um, uh, as far as the, the white institutions are helping um, with with Aboriginal art, I think they've got a long way to go. Um, um, I think that they. Sh there should be um, actual departments of Aboriginal art. You know, like, um, you know, Aboriginal art you know, is is on the wane, but you know, um, at the moment, but um, it's still four or five times bigger than you know, than Australian art. So um, it's it's this monster that's you know, uh, that's not being ta taken uh, seriously by the the white institutions, um, uh, like. Um, well, Aboriginal art is at the moment, you know, the biggest single genre, you know, in world art. You know, so um, certainly that um, would um, warrant, you know, a, a department or certainly a, you know, a, an, an autonomous um, uh, section uh, in each of the, the galleries, and they should have the, their own. Um, uh, their own section, you know, and it should be autonomous, so they don't have to rely on um, on uh, the overall budget of of, of the things. Um, well, there was, there was something else that, that uh, struck struck me this morning when I was thinking about about this. Oh, there's no doubt about it. There's no doubt about that. You know, like um, and. 
in France, you know, they've got a whole new um, museum there, you know. It's, it's, um, oh, gee, Ian would know more about it. Um, it's, what was Keybron, Musée de Keybronley? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, well um, uh, it, it's a, an anthropological muse museum. Um, uh, I, I call it the Musée de Creme Brulee. You know, um, you know, um, to, you know, to you know, look at it derogatorily, you know, so, um, because, you know, it's, it, what it does is, is it doesn't take into account, you know, um, doesn't accept you know Aboriginal art as being you know, part of uh, contemporary art, which, which you know, as we speak, it, it, it's not. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the fuck it is, and, and what what place it, it has. Um, um, I, I think um, its place you know, is being spoken about and negotiated as as we speak. So. I don't consider that I make Aboriginal art. I, I, um, I make contemporary art, you know, certainly with um, um, Aboriginal content. Um, but it's, it's been um, uh, relayed to me, you know, in no uncertain terms by the galleries, that they think it's Aboriginal art, whereas I, I think it's contemporary. Uh, I think Aboriginal art is, is something uh, quite different to co contemporary art. Um, I think it has... Um, you know, a, a set of rules and um, 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 uh, requirements, you know, um, uh, cultural requirements that, that haven't quite been um, taken um, into consideration and how that fit, fits into uh, contemporary art. And, and when, when you look at contemporary art and you look, um, as we speak, you look, um, there's, there's a a monumental shift um, happening uh, uh, in art. Um, for the first time, uh, contemporary art is going to be dominated by um, you know, non-whites. You know, like, uh, what we know is that the dominant art is always the art of the dominant culture. Um, we also know that art follows money. You know, like, and in, in the near future, you know, the Chinese are going to be the ones with the money. And they're going to absolutely dominate um, uh, contemporary art, um, uh, you know, in almost every aspect of it. You know, so um, I, I don't know whether you've all noticed, but there's a lot of sucking up being done to the Chinese right now. You know, so, um, um, and if you think that they're not going to um, assert their dominance, um, I, th I think you're you're very silly. You know. Like, um, you know, there's, there's a reason there's a Chinese cafe in every town in the world. You know? uh, these people n know what know what they're do they're doing, and um, if you think uh, past them, past the Chinese, well, cer certainly after them, well, the the Indians look like they would be uh, 
um, uh, ready to take over from China after they have their obligatory revolution, which they have every 80 to 150 years. So, um, you know, the, the Indians will be ready to, to, to take over, and you only have to look at what they do with cricket, how they dominate cricket, you know, to see what they're going to do to contemporary art. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's true. So, you know, look, there's, there's very little talk, very little discussion about this transition, you know, how, how we go, you know, look, um, like, all these white artists, you know, like, you know the, the white males, you know, precious little flowers that they are, are going to be be struggling, you know, like in, in the not too distant future. You know, so I don't know how they're going to deal with it, you know, with this. Um, um, I'm, you know, like the, at the moment, there's, you know, you know Western art is a sinking ship, you know, like as far as I can I can see, and um, you know, at the moment they're, they're rearranging the deck chairs, you know, like. Um, I suggest we float another boat, you know, like, uh, you know, or, or float other boats, you know, like, and, s and set up our own um, world art or whatever it is, you know, just you know, because we we actually don't need to be part of the, you know, one big dominant scene. You know, um, that seems to be um, uh, what the game is now, but the game's getting, you know, bigger and shinier uh, the, the further we go. You look. Know, like, uh, and it it's costs so much, goddamn much money to make art these days, you know, like, uh, because everybody wants something bigger and shinier than, than what the, the last artist did. Um, so I think, you know, like, um, when we're looking back, you know, from, you know, into the distant future, I think, um, you know, Australian art will, will barely make a, you know, um, more than a couple of entries. <laughs> I think we're, I think Aboriginal art will be, will remain, you know, like um, much bigger, and, and probably much more lasting. And um, it's interesting that Carol Christoph Bargajev, uh, in her research, has discovered that that the first activist art um, came out of um, Yurikala. A lot of those drawings were on display at the recent Istanbul um, uh, Biennale. So. Um, the first activist art, art actually came out of Ab Aboriginal art, you know, the bark petitions and some of these other drawings and that sort of thing. So. What we do in through a lot of the great big museums. 
Well, you know, there was that. That's it, though. I was just thinking when I was saying it that I think it was it Flinders Art, Flinders Art Gallery in South Australia that did it from, from appropriation to appreciation. Yeah, and which, which, which the University Art Gallery seemed to be which slightly different and have, do have much more than yeah. the contemporary aspects of other artists. Well, maybe I know you should all show once you've And that perhaps what the final contemporary art space 
general conversation and to have the arts fall off the radar in the general public and, and mass media such as the yeah. mass media. No, 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 no. Yeah. Indigenous issues
you know, Mr. Morris and the guys who are in uh, uh, art and institutions like this, uh, yeah. in this, in this matter, <coughs> just on something that's based, based solely on, on commerce. Um, and one of, the, one of the problems with the, the art model, um, uh, the art fair model is, is that um, uh, they're now talking about putting up cut from 40% to 60% so the, the, the galleries can pay for these artworks. Now that's crazy. So you can just to be the local I'm thinking that um, we should be looking at um, you know, forming ties with um, you know, Southeast Asia and you know, the Middle East, North and South America, places like that and having, having interaction with them because, um, and, and throughout Europe you know, and, and the States because um, uh, we'll still outnumber the Chinese you know, or the Indians. You know. if, if we had a, um, an infrastructure you know, built up around here, we could have um, you know, concurrent shows you know, like, um, you know, having it in 20, 30 countries. You know. Yeah, yeah, well. There's going to be six Indigenous artists out of 17 Australian artists. That's pretty good. Um, well, I, I think you've gone there. There's not that many. Um, I know. All together. Well, this is my first one in like 24 years. Maybe it's not because I've been 